What do you do when you have to choose between saying what's expected of you and saying what's true? Your boss comes into your office after giving a presentation and says, what did you think? The expected answer is, it it was riveting. You are the best at presentations. But if you were to answer what you really felt, you'd say, "Uh, I've I've seen paint dry that's actually more interesting uh, and informative. Somebody you know comes up to you at church and says, you're my best friend. The expected answer is, you're my best friend. I'm so glad that God's put you in my life. But if you were to say what you really felt, you'd start counting on your fingers and you'd say, you're, you're like number seven. <laughs> you, just, you just chew too loud. You don't know my favorite color. What do you do when to say one thing would be a lie and to say the other thing would be an embarrassment? I think that might be where we pick up in John 20. Just before the text that we just read, uh, John 20 says that the disciples were gathered in an upper room for fear of the Jewish leaders. Maybe they were afraid because the Jewish leaders were the people that just killed Jesus. That seems like a pretty reasonable reason to be afraid. Or maybe they were afraid of the Jewish leaders because they were afraid that the Jewish leaders were actually right about Jesus. That when they said that Jesus was more concerned about building his own kiosk than building the actual kingdom of God, that when they said that he was just a spiritual showman who attracted people with good works and and great miracles, maybe... Maybe they were right. Maybe that's why they locked themselves up. We don't know. But either way, Jesus shows up despite the fact that the door is locked. That's a sermon in itself, isn't it? Jesus is not bothered by locked doors. It's also maybe a little bit of a boundary issue. But either way, Jesus shows up to the disciples and despite the fact that they never asked, he says, look at the the nail holes in my hand and look at my side, stop doubting and believe. And it says that the disciples believed and were overjoyed at seeing the Lord. So all of a sudden, can you hear it? The mood shifts in the room. What was awake ends up being the celebration of a new birth. Jesus breathes on them, gives them the Holy Spirit, thereby increasing their faith and then gives them authority in the kingdom of God. He actually says, the sins that you choose to forgive will be forgiven in the kingdom of God, and the sins that you choose not to forgive will not be forgiven in the kingdom of God. Sounds like a pretty good time until the next verse, which we just read. It says, now Thomas, one of the 12, was not with the disciples. It doesn't tell us where he went. He could have been doing exactly what the rest of the disciples had just done and running to the tomb to see if Jesus really was alive. He could be out getting groceries. Disciples do seem to eat quite a bit. Or he could have been doing what Peter was doing. Going back to his hometown to see whether or not there was anything still left after Jesus. To see if the person that he was supposed to marry was still waiting for him to see if the career that he had left 
still had job openings, to see if his parents, who had dismissed him as someone who followed a cult leader, would still accept him back into their home. We don't know. But either way, despite the fact that the scripture doesn't tell us, when Thomas comes back, he's met instead of this somber tone with a pretty exuberant tone. You can almost see the disciples jumping up and down saying, we have seen the Lord. And behind every statement is a question. And behind this one, the question is, do you, do you think it's true too? Do you think he's really risen? And Thomas has two options. And neither of them are good. If he says the expected answer and says that Jesus is alive, he's no good to anybody but the disciples because the whole community has just seen him die. He'll be written off as a country bumpkin with a taste for the supernatural at best, or worse, someone who's drank the Kool-Aid really deeply and will say whatever he needs to say to rationalize his choice to follow Jesus despite the fact that the man is dead. Or, if he says the unexpected answer, the true one, he'll admit externally what he maybe hasn't even admitted to himself yet, that the last three years were a waste, that the people that he formed friendships with around Jesus were wrong, that he really is just a decent preacher who did some miracles and has a weird cousin who eats bugs in the desert. And so Thomas in this moment is confronted with a choice that all of us have to make. Will we say what's expected or will we say what's true? When I read this, I start to realize that maybe Thomas didn't knew I thought he was. When I've pictured this text before, these are the two guys I thought of when I thought of Thomas. Uh, somebody came into my office on Wednesday and said, is the guy on the left Bernie Sanders? Uh, yes, yeah. Uh, no, this, this is Statler and Waldorf from the Muppets. And if you've watched the Muppets, you know that these are the two guys that stand as far back from the action as they can. So they, instead of being active participants, can critique the performance that's in front of them. When I've read the text, that's what I thought Thomas was doing. You can almost picture him, can't you, saying, ah, the resurrection is just a big joke. Being cynical and hedging his bets, popping his own balloons so nobody else can pop them for him. But now I read the text and that's not who I see anymore. I see friends and family members of mine who used to believe that the church was where God showed up until all it was was... Uh, political tool for certain part, political parties. I see family members who have left the church as people's outward ministry collapses on the sinkhole of their own lack of integrity. I see a student who has been addicted for, for a long time to something and who has cancer and who prays and does everything psychologically and spiritually and clinically possible to find healing from both of those things, but even today is still riddled with cancer and bound in addiction. I see somebody who used to be a pastor, but who walks into these pews every week wondering if they're the only one who used to believe this stuff was true, but now can't affirm it. 
Fred Craddock said that when we read the scripture, we're partially looking for Jesus, but mostly we're looking for our name. We're looking to see if the people that Jesus hangs out with and heals and feeds and interacts with are anything like us to see if we may also be included in the good news, if the good news is something that we can actually use. And so if you read through the scripture and when you come to Thomas's name, you see your name, you know that this isn't a passage fundamentally about skepticism or about cynicism or about a fact-finding mission for God. This passage is about what you do when God dies. And he shows up to everybody but you. And so when you see that that's true, it's a little easier to shift to the next verse where Thomas says, I think, what every reasonable disciple would say. He says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and unless I put my hand into his side, I won't believe. It's the biblical equivalent of fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. If you can show up to me and prove it, I'll believe. But until then, count me out. So what do you do when you're confronted with a choice to say what's expected or say what's true? Usually when we're in Thomas's situation, I think we do one of two things. Uh, one, we say what's expected and suppress the doubt and act like it doesn't exist. Or two, we articulate the doubt vehemently all the way out. And then we excuse ourselves from the community of faith because we don't see a ton of people like us. Thomas chooses a third way. The text says, a week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your fingers in my hands. See my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas gets his moment. He exclaims, my Lord and my God, the biblical equivalent of it really is you. Elsewhere in scripture, we're told that without Faith, nobody sees the Lord, but in this passage, without doubt, nobody gets to touch him. But according to Jesus, this even is flipped on its head. In the next verse, he says, because you've seen me, You've believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. I hate that. Anybody else hate that? Because if I'm reading this right, I'm very open to the possibility that I'm not. What Jesus is saying is that after the resurrection, there are two types of people. The people who have seen and the people who haven't seen. And more blessed and more happy and more favored, Jesus says, are the people who, though they have not seen, yet believe. But have you been to church lately? Do you see who makes it into the videos? Do you see who we idealize as disciples? It's people who can point in their life to a moment and say, but God. It's people who have had obvious experiences. Jesus has shown up to their house 
And so often people who end up feeling like Thomas and who have not seen yet feel like second-class disciples. But what Jesus says is that church isn't just uh, for those who have seen. Church is actually the community for those who haven't. The best faith doesn't belong to those who affirm because they have seen. The best faith affirms and in the affirmation finds sight. But the problem is if you're Thomas, then the hardest place to be is in church because never will you find a more dense community full of people who are affirming things that are hard to affirm if you haven't seen Jesus in a long time. And so I think there are those of us uh, in this community who are inwardly wasting away because we keep wanting to be what we perceive as the ideal disciple, forgetting that church belongs to those who have not yet seen. So this morning, what I'm gonna ask you to do is a little counterintuitive uh, to what we hear about Thomas usually. I'm gonna ask you to be like Thomas with one exception. Thomas often gets a pretty bad rap uh, for being the doubter, but the fact is that none of the other disciples actually believed until they saw Jesus, right? The two women run to the tomb and then they go back and they tell the disciples and the two disciples go ahead and run to the tomb themselves and then they go back into a room and lock the doors because they're scared out of their wits until Jesus shows up and then they believe. So Thomas' mistake wasn't not believing until he saw because the rest of the disciples did that. That would just make him a disciple, not a doubter. The problem with Thomas, the one mistake he made was not being present with the disciples when Jesus showed up. So if you resonate with Thomas, I'm gonna ask you to do two things this morning. The first is to hang out in places where Jesus shows up. This is hard to do if you're Thomas. But what I'm gonna ask you to do this morning is to uh, be embarrassed like Thomas in the places that the disciples hang out. To doubt like Thomas, to articulate the problems that you're having, believe in God in the middle of the community of faith. And then to go back to a time where you can remember God engaging you. To this week, read a scripture that spoke to you back when you saw the Lord, to schedule a meeting with someone who wears Jesus well, to listen to an old sermon that moved you when you could see the Lord, and to know that often God asks us to do things that we don't wanna do, to meet with people we don't wanna meet with, and to affirm things that we don't yet know how to affirm to become the kind of people that God's asked us to be. And the second thing I'm gonna ask you to do is to say what's true rather than what's expected. This doesn't always happen in scripture, but something about Thomas's ability to say what he needs ended with him experiencing the resurrection like nobody else did. Scripture is full of people consistently who try to see God and who put out a fleece and end up disappointed. But something about Thomas's ability to articulate the bare minimum of, of what he needed to believe got honored. I think often we think 
that when we come to church, the best gift that we can offer the community of faith is our faith. But if Thomas and if Jesus teach us anything, it's that sometimes the best gift that we can give to the community of faith is the honest expression of our doubt.